Okay. Hey, good morning, Reach Montreal. It's so good to see you again. Good to be back here uh, to come and fill in for Dustin while he's on sabbatical. Um, as Matt said, my name is Jeff. I'm a pastor in DDO, Pierrefond. I'm also a missionary here from the States, um, working to reach uh, some of the neighborhoods among us. And I mentioned an update a few or a couple months ago about uh, some of the ministry with kids in our neighborhood and this one boy, Gurkit, who had a dream about Jesus and has actually come to believe in Jesus through that. And uh, I have an, another update with him. You can keep him in your prayers. Well, he had another dream where um, his, he had a dream where uh, his parents were, were kind of being taken away by demons while Jesus was calling Gurkit son but saying that we need to go get your parents. Um, so this is just another amazing witness of the Holy Spirit of what he's doing in families among us, that he's still at work around us. And, and then uh, last week, Gurkit's cousins um, came over to his home to stay because there's a split in the family right now. And I said, well, let's pray for this family. And so I prayed and I was probably using big fancy words and quoting the Psalms and everything. And then when I finished, uh, Gurkit's like, wait, can I pray? And so Gurkit prayed and he's, he just said, dear Jesus, I know that you are God. I know you hear us. Can you bring their mom back? And just the simple childlike faith can blow away every fancy word we have to say. Um, so praise God for this. Um, he's, he's at work around us. So, and part of what we're gonna be talking about today is the work and the witness of the Holy Spirit because that's where we are at in Mark. Let me read this for us from Mark chapter three. So the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And Jesus called them to him and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, then that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And then he says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So let me pray for our hearts one more time before we get into what this all means. Father God, thank you for your grace today. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for this, um, this parable that you taught us in and, and for your work, Lord, in our lives and in this world against the enemy, and I pray that you would open our hearts to hear your word today, open my mouth to speak your words in my heart, Lord, um, that we would honor you. We pray in your name, Jesus, amen. So they come down and they, the scribes come down, they slander Jesus. I don't know if you know what that's like to feel slandered, like somebody is causing harm to your reputation to be accused of something unjustly, um, to, to have your character um, be compromised like that is a devastating and harmful and hurtful thing. What would you do if somebody accused you of being Satan? 
That's a really strong accusation. And that's what Jesus is facing here. We see that this kind of thing can be so harmful to relationships and families and, I mean, look at politics. Anytime somebody wants to be in leadership, the opposing party is gonna do everything they can to dig up something from the past to malign their character. That's what slandering is. Um, But this happens also in churches. There are churches that split over things like this um, because of divisions and accusations and slandering. I'm not talking about the justifiable accusations that bring justice, that is right, but I'm talking about just gossip and slander and divisions. Look how strong this is in God's word of what it's like to spread lies like that. James says that the tongue is a small member of the body, yet how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And he says the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. So it can set ablaze a wildfire just from little words of gossip. And Matthew 12, 34 says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it's not just empty words, but there's something deep down in our hearts that causes what we say to come out. And he's addressing in that passage, the Pharisees calling them a brood of vipers because their words are poisonous. So there's a lot of power in these words um, and in our hearts. But even Paul in Corinthians draws this correlation between the words that we speak out of the affections of our hearts in our worship of God and our relationship with the Holy Spirit. He says that, I want you to understand, no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And then he says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So there is a real correlation between the affections of our hearts, the words that we speak, and our relationship with God. And that's where we see in this passage, they are calling the Holy Spirit an unclean spirit. This is coming out of the affections of their hearts. And Jesus is um, bringing about in this parable and really calling them out on this blasphemy that they are walking into. So our words really matter. And this is important for us also to look at today. This, is, this has something for us to learn. We've been seeing um, through Mark, we're only in chapter three now, but already we're seeing this thick plot in this storyline of how there's mounting tension from the Pharisees and the scribes of the Pharisees who keep accusing Jesus. And so now this plot line continues, except to Jesus, they cross a line here. They cross this line when they accuse the Holy Spirit of being the prince of demons, that crosses a line. And Jesus uses some strong words to say this is an unforgivable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And this, there's a lot of question marks around us today for this as we look back in this context and wonder, what does that mean, an unforgivable sin, guilty of an eternal sin? What does that mean for us too? Um, but behind all this, we see that the Pharisees and the religious leaders at that time, who their own pride and, and religious pride was being threatened by G- the grace of Jesus, by the g- announcement of the gospel, proclamation of the gospel, they are keeping God at an arm's length. They really uh, are, th- are feeling threatened by his kingdom and they see the works going on around them. Jesus is casting out demons left and right and they are perceiving this as something that's not right. And so they're really keeping things at a suspicious arm's length and accusing him. But 
to put this in perspective for us, I, I, I asked at first, do you know what it's like to be slandered, for someone to call out your character, or to malign your reputation? But are there times perhaps where we've been on the other side, where we've spoken words that have not been fair to one another? Have we been the ones who are suspicious of somebody before we get to know them or kind of keep them at an arm's length, not sure what they're really about? We can actually do some harm unintentionally at times, sometimes intentionally in our worst of moments. Um, But not just with each other, but with God. Sometimes we see what God's doing. We hear about what God's doing. We even see him encroaching in areas of our lives that we would like to see under our control and we keep him at an arm's length. And what we have to be cautious of is that if we're not anticipating the spirit, then we can very easily end up accusing the spirit. And rather than blessing the spirit, we can end up blaspheming the spirit. Instead of discerning what the spirit's doing, we can end up really despising things that God is about. And that's what we need to be cautious of today. So let's get into the start of this passage. The first thing we see is that the scribes come down from Jerusalem and they were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. They say he's possessed and Part of this is true, you could say. Not that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul, but that Jesus has a power, an anointing from the Holy Spirit, that he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so to say that that man is supernaturally empowered, he is possessed, um, being filled and used by a spirit, that's totally correct. But he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's not um, possessed by Beelzebul. So this is completely wrong. But who are these scribes? When we're looking at how somebody goes about slandering uh, uh, your character or your reputation, you know, it's one thing if somebody who has no credibility and no authority is just spouting out lies about you. It's still hurtful. It's still harmful. But how much different is it when it's someone with credibility and authority going around speaking news about you? That's what was happening here when the scribes from Jerusalem came down to where Jesus was teaching and on their credibility and on their authority, they were, the official word was Jesus is casting out demons by the prince of demons. That meant a lot. That could really do a lot. Imagine all the people that we've seen transformed by Jesus's work, all the healings, crowds have been beginning to gather around Jesus And all of a sudden these words start going around, yeah, but have you ever thought, maybe that's not God, maybe that's Satan doing these things. Oh, I heard from these scribes from Jerusalem that that's actually Satan and we need to be careful. And oh, they could undo so much um, is the threat that we're seeing here. And I kind of see just the, the scribes, to put some humor on this, the scribes coming down from Jerusalem and squaring off with the disciples of Jesus. It's kind of like the, the Jets and the Sharks from West Side Story. These two gangs, opposing gangs, or you know, like the Soches and the Greasers, um, uh, or, or like Ron Burgundy and the Channel 4 News team squaring off against Evening News. I see like the Pharisees and the, the disciples of Jesus being like, you know, squaring off. But um, here's what they were saying. They were saying that yes, Jesus is doing these supernatural works. They can't deny his power. They can't deny that he has cast out these demons and healed these people. But now they're, they're getting into 
um, who was behind that work. So let's take a look at what it, what it would look like to anticipate rather than to accuse the Holy Spirit. These experts in the Jewish law should have been anticipating the work of the Holy Spirit, especially by someone who is coming to say uh, that I am the chosen one of God, the, the, the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of Man, the bridegroom of the bride. These are things that Jesus was saying who he is. And if someone was making the claim that they were the Son of God, then you should, having been steeped in the tradition and in the, the Word of God from the Old Testament, been anticipating that that person would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Old Testament, you see an anticipation of the Holy Spirit. Moses, uh, called to be a prophet, called out wishing, oh, that everybody could be a prophet because he was so burdened by the task. And uh, we see in Joel that it shall come that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. There's an anticipation one day when the Holy Spirit will be poured out um, generously. But look at the correlation between the Messiah and the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 11. Here's what God says about his Messiah. He says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And get this, count with me how many times it says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord shall rest upon him. Four times in two verses, Isaiah is saying, the Holy Spirit will be upon the Messiah and with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And we're gonna see how Jesus fulfills that. Then Isaiah 42, again he says, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So we should, you know, in the Old Testament in Isaiah, we see this silhouette of a caricature of the Messiah. We don't know what he's going to look like, but we know some of the things he's going to do, some of the character that he, we will expect to see in him. And we see that being filled with the Holy Spirit is clearly something to anticipate. But then we go in through Mark, and we should see these things, we should see that silhouette stepping into the light and seeing the actual face of Jesus fulfilling that that silhouette, that question mark of who the Messiah would be. Because look at what Isaiah 42 said. He said that this is my servant, my chosen, in whom my soul delights and the spirit will rest upon him. Well, look what Mark writes about Jesus' baptism in chapter one. When Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Isaiah said, my spirit will rest upon him. Mark, we see the spirit descends upon him. Isaiah says, the one in whom my soul delights, in the baptism we see, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. So we see these things coming true. Isaiah 11 said that he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. He will have powerful words and he says with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And yet two weeks ago when, when I was preaching about the man with the withered hand and how Jesus uh, lowered the proud and rose the humble, we see he, with the breath of his lips, shall kill the wicked, and yet he shall decide with equity for the meek and the poor. 
So Jesus is fulfilling all these things and it's because of the spirit upon him. They should have anticipated this. This should have been, you know, made so much sense. But instead, they had a conclusion already in their mind. They already had drawn up their conclusion and they already settled their mind without anticipating the, the actual word of God. And we need to, we need to be actively um, studying our scripture too. They didn't anticipate the Holy Spirit according to God's word. Because if they knew God's word, they would have anticipated. Sometimes we need to be so acquainted with God's word so that when things happen in our life, we are not surprised. Paul says, don't be surprised by the fiery trials that you are facing. And, and if we know the, the themes of scripture, if we know the words of God in scripture, then we won't be surprised. We will instead anticipate how we should live in this world and respond to this world. We should approach the Bible and not submitting God's word to our authority, but we should submit our lives to the authority of God's word. Had the scribes done this, submit their authority to God's word, they could have anticipated the spirit. And so we need to be doing this as well. Instead of anticipating, they accused the spirit. They fell short. All signs pointed to how Jesus is the Messiah filled with the spirit, but their eyes were blind. Their hearts were hardened. They couldn't they couldn't see the witness of the Holy Spirit, even though they could really see the works of the Holy Spirit. They couldn't deny that. They still denied the, the witness of the Spirit. So to see some works like this, to see some miracles in this day and accuse someone of, uh, of sorcery, really, wasn't uncommon. There were things like this that happened. And people that were out of line with God and his kingdom and his word, and they were accused of being you know, uh, uh, of being filled with uh, anyway, demonic power. And so here in this passage, we see a mix, a variety of phrases that are being thrown around here, like Beelzebul and Prince of Demons and Satan and Unclean Spirit. All of these things are kind of pointing to the same direction of saying that this is Satan, the adversary, the accuser, the enemy of God, behind all of this. Beelzebul is a less common word that we you know, refer to with Satan, but it really means like Lord of flies or Lord of demons, things like this. Um, Satan is, is the term for God's chief adversary. The enemy of God and man is Satan. And it, it has this connotation of the accuser. So what I find so interesting um, in this picture is that Satan is the one under attack by Jesus' presence here on earth. And in, Jesus, in Satan's offensive strategy to be causing division, he's, he's actually accusing Jesus of being the accuser. It's like Jesus was at work with the Holy Spirit and Satan comes to these scribes and these Pharisees and he's saying, you see that? That's, that's Satan, that's me. He's, telling, he's pointing at Jesus and saying, that's Satan. It's Satan all the while accusing Jesus of being the accuser. And so this is just the dirty tactics of the enemy um, trying to retain control in his realm of this fallen world. And um, that word Beelzebul also has a connotation to imply master of the house. And so this is something that Jesus builds on with a parable 
of this master of a house, the strong man in a house. And this is kind of a picture of who Satan is. What, what authority does Satan have? What is this domain that Satan has? We'll look again at God's word in John 14. Jesus tells his disciples, I will not talk much with you. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. The ruler of this world. Jesus referring to Satan as the ruler of this world. Second uh, Corinthians, Paul says that in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So the God of this world is a term for Satan. First John 5.19 says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And then look at Luke 4, 6. When, when Jesus went through the temptation in the wilderness, confronting Satan face to face, here's what Satan says. He says, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give all this authority and their glory to you. For it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. So Satan has this authority in this realm of this fallen world. Meanwhile, God has completely uncompromised control um, of, of the whole universe. Yet spiritually, there is a fallen world where Satan has this influence. And yet Jesus now comes to overthrow and to bind the strong man. We, yes, we see that in God's word that the, that the enemy has this territory. But look at this parable. Jesus kind of lays out this story saying, if, 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 but. He builds up to this strong conclusion. He says, if a kingdom is divided, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided, it cannot stand. If Satan is divided, he cannot stand. He's painting a very clear picture. But, he says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus is making it very clear what you're accusing me of, that I am casting out demons by the prince of demons is completely false. If Satan is divided, it cannot stand. Kingdom divided, cannot stand. House divided, cannot stand. But let me tell you the truth. I came to bind the strong man and plunder his goods. This is Jesus calling the scribes to him and saying, here is the truth. And then he goes a step further to say, you are the ones in blasphemy. But what about this parable? What does this really mean? That Jesus come to bind the strong man and plunder his goods. Jesus is saying that he is stronger than Satan. Jesus is saying that he came here to overthrow Satan and to win back the captives who were taken when Jesus confronted Satan in the wilderness, he bound the strong man. He overthrew him there. He took away his power and his authority that he had. Colossians 2.15 says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Isaiah 49 says... For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. This is the good news that Jesus has been sent to free the captives. 
to contend with those who contend with you, to contend, to fight with the enemy of God and man. But in order to be plundered, we had to have been taken. We had been taken in sin. When Adam was tempted in the garden by Satan, all of man, by, through one man, all mankind fell into sin. Satan threw the world into sin through the temptation of that one man. And we have since been taken captive by sin. We walk into it every day. Each one of us has been taken in sin through the deceitful schemes of the enemy, the enemy of God and the enemy of his children. But God says, I will rescue the children. So to be plundered is good news. That the enemy had taken you and now you are freed. In Christ, you were in darkness, now you are in light. You were enslaved, now you have been purchased. You were rejected, now you have been redeemed. You were not a people, now you are a people. You were orphans, now you're adopted. You were low, now you've been raised. You were dead, now you're alive. You were captured, now you've been ransomed. In Jesus, all of this has come true because he contends with those who contend with you. This is true because Jesus overcame the temptation from the enemy. Jesus paid the debt of sin that we owed on the cross. Jesus lived a full and perfect life in the Holy Spirit as we never could. He contended with sin and death and Satan because we never could. We were captive. But he did this. And then, get this. The Holy Spirit that we see working in Jesus, he gives to us. He doesn't just free us and make us children, but he sends us out as his children filled with the Holy Spirit. This is amazing news. Look, here in 2021, the worst thing that you could probably do to somebody is breathe on them. Isn't that what we're all trying to avoid? That, imagine if I went up to you and I just breathed on you. That would be the most offensive thing anybody could do in this moment. This is what we're all trying to avoid. That's why we wear masks to keep from breathing on people. We stand six feet away to, to keep our breath away from people because my breath could be harmful to you. If I have COVID, you end up in a hospital. My, death, my breath could bring you death. And look what Jesus does in John 20 after his life, death, resurrection. He appears to his disciples and he says to them, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. Even so, I am sending you and when he said this, he breathed on them. Picture Jesus breathing on you. What would that look like for Jesus to go and breathe on you? And then he says, receive the Holy Spirit. That's how he imparted the Holy Spirit on his disciples. Jesus' breath carries life. And he gives that life to us. And in, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit filled the church and established the church. The church. So if, if Jesus' breath gives us life, then we can anticipate the Holy Spirit in our lives rather than end up accusing him. But here's the other thing. 
that Jesus concludes with here is about this whole situation of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. In, rather than anticipating the Holy Spirit, they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This is good news to start with, that Jesus, first of all, says clearly, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. All sins will be forgiven. That's an amazing proclamation of good news. All sins will be forgiven. Whatever misdeeds we've done, whatever misspoken name of God we've uttered, whatever careless words we've used, whatever good deeds we have omitted to do, all these sins will be forgiven. The, the mercy of our Father and the blood of Jesus, our Savior, and, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to apply salvation to our lives is good enough to forgive every sin. But what happens if you deny the Spirit? If you deny the witness of the Spirit, then you don't have that forgiveness. There's forgiveness for all sins. And God is our witness to his grace in our lives. We live in a world filled with common grace. Every day we experience his beauty and goodness. And he has witnessed to us, to us of his love by sustaining every breath we have. And yet, what more? He said, I'm gonna send another witness. My own son will come and he will witness to you about who I am and my love for you by overcoming sin and death. And so Jesus and the works that he did are a witness to the love of the Father. And so through Jesus, we can be reconciled with God. And yet even more, Jesus' works were witnessed by the witness of the Holy Spirit. They were endorsed by the witness of the Holy Spirit. But if you deny the witness of the Holy Spirit and his testimony to the gospel of Jesus, then there is no forgiveness for sins. That's what Jesus is saying. There's no more witness. You've denied God, you've denied the Son, you've denied the Spirit. There's no further witness for you to even believe. If you don't believe the Spirit, you're not gonna believe. And so they ended up blaspheming the Spirit. And these were strong words. Look, they, they accused Jesus of blasphemy when Jesus forgave the sins of the paralyzed man and they said, who has power to forgive sins but God alone? He is blaspheming. Um, the, the Jews would avoid blasphemy at all costs. And here is Jesus saying, you are, are facing an, an eternal sin, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. So what about us? What happens when, when the witness of the Holy Spirit touches our lives and we continue to look the other way? Like I said, sometimes we in our suspicion and in our sin and our divisions, we keep people at an arm's length suspicious of who they are, and we, we do the same thing with the Holy Spirit ourselves. We can end up seeing God coming in, ransoming the captives and changing our lives, but then we're like, oh, no, no, no. That's by, that's, this part of my life is just for me. You know, this is my own secret thing. This is the area that I like to control. You can't take that away from me, Jesus. We, we tend to keep Jesus at an arm's length and the witness of the Holy Spirit. Or we see God continue to place his grace along the path of our life and we just keep looking the other way. We keep saying, no, that, 
probably wasn't God doing that. That was probably just coincidence. It's not God. We, we tend to brush away the work and the witness of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. But instead, if we receive Christ, we're brought into that relationship with him. So we can be filled with his spirit too. So rather than um, blaspheming the spirit, we can bless the spirit by walking in relationship with him. We welcome him in, in our life, but then we walk with him in our life. And this is how we bless the spirit. The final point is um, how we can grow in discerning the spirit lest we end up despising what God is doing. There's a couple areas where I really see this being important in our lives today. It's in our church and it's with each other. Jesus established the church with his Holy Spirit. He filled the church with his Holy Spirit. Imagine this, back in the Old Testament, the presence of the Lord filled the temple. And this was an amazing thing. When we see Solomon dedicate the temple and the Holy Spirit descend and consume the offering and fill the temple with the glory of the Lord and everybody falls down on their faces worshiping the Lord. Everybody is filled with awe. This is an amazing thing. And then we see at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it's not just a physical temple that we have to go and journey to and only a priest can go and enter the presence of God. Now God's presence fills us and establishes the church being built together. Each one of us is a living stone being built together on Christ and on top of the apostles and we are a spiritual dwelling place for the Holy Spirit and we treat it as a mundane thing. This should fill us with awe that we have all been chosen and adopted and filled and brought together but we treat it like just it's another Sunday and you know, I gotta do this and he's gotta do that and it's just the, the order of things we're preoccupied by what we have to do rather than being occupied with what God is doing. We can treat church as just a mundane thing and end up kind of despising what the Holy Spirit is doing and, and you know, neglecting things like our prayer meetings, neglecting things like our city groups because it just feels like a program. But no, it is spirit-filled. That's the work of the Spirit in you today and among you today. And he is witnessing to the change that Jesus is accomplishing in your life. So if you deny that witness of the Holy Spirit, we can't. We, we have to draw near to him. We have to discern what the Holy Spirit is doing. The other area where I think um, this has a big impact is um, with each other. And regarding our unity. Jesus in this parable, he says, if a kingdom is divided, it cannot stand. If a house is divided, it cannot stand. If Satan is divided, he cannot stand. There's a principle that applies here in the church. We know that when Jesus established his church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's no threat to the kingdom of God. And just because Satan has this limited authority in this fallen world does not mean that God is not on the throne. God is on the throne in complete omnipotent control. Um, and, and yet the church sometimes faces divisions and disunity. Unity is, is a touchy subject. I know for, for me this year, it's been a, an eye-opening conversation just to think about what unity really looks like in the church and among our churches around us. What does it look like to maintain unity in the church? 
Look, uh, here's a quote from Leslie Newbegin. He's an author who writes that the divisions of the church are a public denial of the sufficiency of the atonement. If the atoning work that Jesus accomplished on the cross is true, and it's true for all who follow Christ, then having these divisions is like publicly denying that. It's saying, yes, that's true, but it's, there's these other things that are also more important. Um, another writer, Tim Sorens, writes this, to say unity is impossible is effectively to say the gospel is not true. And those were, those were big words for me this year. When I read, are you telling me that I don't believe the gospel is true? That's, that's a way to get to my heart. But to say that unity is impossible, as my heart tends to believe a lot of times, then it's, it's really saying that uh, the gospel is not true enough. He says this, powerful forces want us to give up. The powers that be do not want to see a movement of hopeful resistance. They do not want us to change the story. Look at Satan in this encounter, accusing Jesus of being the accuser. Satan does not want our unity. So our unity is spiritual warfare against the enemy. But he loves sowing division and casting doubt and suspicion and accusations. But if the gospel is at the center, and it must, then we must strive for unity in our churches and among our churches as we put the gospel at the center. That's all I've got for us today is to just finish on that note, embracing the unity that we have um, in the kingdom of God. And I'll wrap up with this. Because the work and the witness of the Holy Spirit is that crucial to the gospel, then we must anticipate and instead of accuse the Holy Spirit through welcoming him into our life. Maybe that's you today. You've been holding him out at an arm's length. We need to anticipate him. And part of that is being in your word to know what the character of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit looks like and the gifts that he gives. We have to bless instead of blaspheme the Spirit through walking with him in our life, not doing life in your own strength, in your own, according to your own wisdom, but according to the Spirit. And finally, we discern instead of despise the Spirit through striving for unity with each other and in the church. So let me pray. Father God, thank you for contending with the enemy on our behalf to win back the captives so that we could be your sons and daughters. Jesus, thank you for breathing on us with your Holy Spirit so that we can walk with you and have the mind of Christ and have the heart of Christ. You've made us your temple. And so help us as your temple to maintain unity in the power of the gospel against our common foe, against our common enemy until one day um, when he is overthrown and all things are uh, submitted under your authority, Jesus. We anticipate that day and we live according to that future hope right now. Help us to do that this week. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.